European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 46, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Catheter-Based and Surgical Interventions in Cardiac and Aortic Conditions Advanced heart failure is a growing epidemic since the available treatment options currently are palliative in nature. Indeed, although life expectancy has been improved thanks to modern medical treatment of chronic heart failure and thanks to devices such as biventricular pacemakers and implantable cardioverter defibrillators, as outlined in the most recent ESC guidelines, the clinical outcome remains eventually dismal. The most effective treatment option, cardiac transplantation, remains reserved to highly selected and younger patients with advanced heart failure. Recently, left ventricular assist devices have led to improved quality of life and long-term survival for patients diagnosed with this devastating condition. In their clinical review, left ventricular assist devices, current controversies and future directions, Mark Slaughter and colleagues from the University of Louisville in Kentucky, USA, update previous reviews and summarize the history and clinical outcomes of left ventricular assist devices. They also focus on the current controversies and issues facing left ventricular assist device therapy. Finally, future directions for the role of left ventricular assist devices in the treatment of end-stage heart failure either as transition or destination therapy, is discussed. The most important cause of end-stage heart failure is coronary artery disease. Whether percutaneous coronary intervention or bypass surgery is more efficacious in preventing reinfarction, remodeling and death is a continuing debate. In an ESC clinical trial update, Fast Track, Comparative efficacy of coronary artery bypass surgery versus percutaneous coronary intervention in patients with diabetes and multivessel coronary artery disease with or without chronic kidney disease. Usman Barber and colleagues from the Ikan School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City investigate the optimal approach of coronary revascularization among patients with diabetes mellitus and multivessel coronary artery disease complicated by chronic kidney disease. To that end, they examined the impact of both approaches on cardiovascular outcomes in patients with diabetes with and without chronic kidney disease in an as-treated subgroup analysis of the FREEDOM trial. They stratified 1,843 patients by the presence or absence of chronic kidney disease defined as an estimated glomerular filtration rate, or eGFR, of less than 60 millimeters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Patients with chronic kidney disease with a mean eGFR of 47 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared were older and more often female compared to those without it. Over a follow-up of almost four years, the effect of bypass surgery on major cardiovascular events was consistent among those with or without chronic kidney disease with no evidence of interaction. Stroke rates were non-significantly higher with surgery, whereas rates of myocardial infarction and repeat revascularization were significantly reduced with bypass surgery in both groups. 
the authors conclude that compared to percutaneous coronary intervention, the effects of bypass surgery on long-term risks for major cardiovascular events are preserved among patients with diabetes and multivessel coronary artery disease complicated by moderate chronic kidney disease. The results of this trial are put into further perspective in an editorial by Fernando Alfonso from the Hospital Universitario de la Princesa in Madrid, Spain. Abdominal aortic aneurysms are another life-threatening condition primarily affecting older men with a history of smoking or patients with a genetic disposition such as those with Marfan's or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. As medical therapy has little impact on the growth rate of abdominal aneurysms in both conditions, open surgery or transarterial stenting remains the management of choice in those at high risk of rupture. The most recent ESC guidelines recommend periodic ultrasound surveillance of smaller abdominal aortic aneurysms until they reach 55mm, become symptomatic, or fast-growing, i.e. 10mm per year. In their article, Sex-Related Trends in Mortality After Elective Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm Surgery between 2002 and 2013 at National Health Service, NHS, hospitals in England, less benefit for women compared to men, Mital Desse and colleagues from University College London investigated long-term survival and cardiovascular morbidity between women and men undergoing elective abdominal aortic aneurysm repair at NHS hospitals in England. A total of 4,795 women and 26,295 men underwent open abdominal aortic aneurysm repair, while 2,036 women and 14,741 men underwent endovascular aneurysm repair, the so-called EVAR procedure. Female gender was an independent risk factor for 30-day mortality in both open repair, with an odds ratio of 1.39, and EVAR, with an odds ratio of 1.57. Based on an all-cause long-term survival model, conditional on 30-day survival, the estimated hazard for women in the open repair group was significantly higher than in men, but the gender difference was not significant in the EVAR group. In the open repair group, women had a significantly higher cumulative incidence probability for both aortic-related mortality and other cause mortality. In the EVAR group, women had significantly higher mean cumulative incidence probability for aortic-related mortality compared with men, but not for other cause mortality. Dessay and colleagues conclude that women undergoing elective abdominal aortic aneurysm repair at NHS hospitals in England had increased short- and long-term mortality and post-operative morbidity compared with men. These findings can be used to improve preoperative counselling for women undergoing abdominal aortic aneurysm repair and highlight the needs for female-specific pre-, peri-, and post-operative management strategies. Another procedure performed with increasing frequency is the percutaneous left atrial appendage closure. While novel oral anticoagulants have been investigated in large outcomes trials with thousands of patients, 
and are thus still the treatment of choice in stroke prevention, percutaneous left atrial appendage closure has only been assessed in small and middle-sized trials. Thus, large datasets are crucial for the further use of this promising procedure as provided by Tom Wong and colleagues from the Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospitals in London, UK, in their article Outcomes and Costs of Left Atrial Appendage Closure from Randomized Controlled Trials and Real-World Experience Relative to Oral Anticoagulation. The authors set out to analyze randomized controlled studies and real-world outcomes of patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation undergoing left atrial appendage closure with the Watchman device and compared costs with available antithrombotic therapies. Registry data of left atrial appendage closure from two centers were prospectively collected in 110 patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation at risk of stroke suitable and unsuitable for long-term anticoagulation with a CHA2-DS2-VA score of 4.5 and a HASBLED score of 3.8. Outcomes from PROTECT-AF and registry study left atrial appendage closure were compared with warfarin, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, aspirin, and no treatment using a network meta-analysis. Costs were estimated over a 10-year horizon. Procedural success rate was 92%. Follow-up was two years, during which annual rates of stroke, major bleeding, and all-cause mortality were 0.9%, 0.9%, and 1.8% respectively. Anticoagulants therapy was successfully stopped in 91.2% of implanted patients by 12 months. Registry left atrial appendage closure, stroke, and major bleeding rates were significantly lower than those in the PROTECT-AF trial. The mean absolute and significant difference was 0.89% for of stroke and 5.48% for major bleeding. Left atrial appendage closure achieved cost parity at 4.7 years compared with dabigatran 110 mg and 8.4 years compared to warfarin. At 10 years, left atrial appendage closure was cost-saving against all therapies. The authors conclude that left atrial appendage closure in non-valvular atrial fibrillation in a real-world setting may result in lower stroke and major bleeding rates than reported in left atrial appendage closure clinical trials. Left atrial appendage closure in both settings achieves cost parity in a relatively short amount of time and may offer substantial savings compared with current therapies. Savings are most pronounced among higher-risk patients and those unsuitable for anticoagulation. In a final research paper entitled Cardiac Energetics, Oxygenation and Perfusion During Increased Workload in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus, Stefan Neubauer and colleagues from the University of Oxford in the UK remind us that patients with Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus are known to have impaired resting myocardial energetics and impaired myocardial perfusion reserve even in the absence of obstructive epicardial coronary artery disease. Whether the pre-existing energetic deficit is exacerbated by exercise 
and whether the impaired myocardial perfusion causes deoxygenation and further energetic derangement during exercise stress is uncertain. 31 type 2 diabetes mellitus patients on oral anti-diabetic therapies with a mean hemoglobin A1c of 7.4% and 17 matched controls underwent adenosine stress cardiovascular magnetic resonance for assessment of perfusion, i.e. myocardial perfusion reserve index, MPRI, and oxygenation, i.e. blood oxygen level dependent bold signal intensity change, SI delta. Cardiac phosphorus MR spectroscopy was performed at rest and during leg exercise. Significant coronary artery disease was excluded by coronary computed tomographic angiography. Resting PCR slash ATP was reduced by 17% in diabetics to 1.74 compared to 2.1 in controls. During exercise, there was a further 12% reduction in PCR slash ATP diabetics, but no change in controls. Myocardial Perfusion Reserve Index, MPRI, was 1.61 in diabetics and 2.11 plus or minus 0.68 in controls, and oxygenation as expressed as blood oxygen level dependent bold, signal intensity change SI delta was 7.3% in diabetics, but 17.1% in controls. Exercise PCR slash ATP correlated with the myocardial perfusion reserve index MPRI and with the blood oxygen level dependent bold signal intensity change SI delta. The authors conclude that the pre-existing energetic deficit in diabetic cardiomyopathy is exacerbated by exercise and the stress PCR slash ATP ratio correlates with impaired perfusion and oxygenation. Their findings thus suggest that, in diabetes, coronary microvascular dysfunction exacerbates derangement of cardiac energetics under conditions of increased workload. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.